I want to start this morning by telling you about a conversation I had years ago uh, with Max Lauterman. Some of you know him. He's a Sunday school teacher in the Kingdom Builders class during the 9.30 hour. Max used to be not only a school teacher, but for a while he was an FBI agent. So one time I was talking with Max, and I said, Max, you got any interesting stories from being an FBI agent? He said, sure. I said, you mind telling me one? He said, okay. He said, in the 1960s, he said, during the Civil Rights Movement, I was, uh, I was sent to work in Grenada, Mississippi. He said there had been some hostility there, uh, racial tension, because uh, evidently uh, a black man had been uh, jailed, and uh, it was believed by the black community unjustly so. So during one of those days in the square, they gathered, the black community did, to uh, protest, and they had a rally right there, and they were uh, pretty worked up. And he said, then uh, surrounding them was uh, many, many people, white people in the community, who were having a rally of their own against their rally. And he said, in between, I can't remember if he said state troopers or the National Guard was in between those two groups. So can you picture those two circles? He said, everything was going along pretty predictably until out of the theater there came three people, a white couple and a black person walking together like they were friends. When the people in the crowd saw that, he said something hostile took over and they began to attack those three people. When they did that, he said, it was my and my buddy's job to get between them and protect those three people and their rights. He said, it took us a while to get in between those people and by the time we did, they had been injured. But he said, I will never forget the phenomenon of watching, he said, this group, it was like suddenly they had a completely different personality and they moved like a mob to become destructive. Some of us know that Jesus had something similar to happen to him when he was on trial, where a group of people that had been more than willing to listen to him now gathered and said, crucify him, and they became hostile and violent. And it was like all of a sudden a swarm of hate just moved in one direction. Now, why do I bring this up? Because before we're done looking at this passage today, before we look at this encounter that Jesus has in his life, that's exactly what's going to happen. The passage you're gonna, we're going to read today in Luke starts out where people just love Jesus. They just think he's great. They can't say enough good stuff about him. By the time it's done, they want to kill him. And I want to talk to you today about how does that happen what, what, what is going on there, and how does that relate to our lives? So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 14 through 30 in chapter 4 today. And if you're getting used to your Bibles, Luke is about the last fourth of your Bible. And uh, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels about Jesus. Then we're in Luke's Gospel this year for at least the first five or six months of 2016. And if you turn back there, now if you don't have a Bible, if you want to use one of the black ones, we say this every Sunday, please feel free to take it out. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. But it's on page 718, and that'll help you turn to it so you'll be right there. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. This message is entitled, Hometown Rejection. And if you haven't been with us, if you look up here at the banners, we've got the title of our series, The Life of Christ, The Study in the Book or the Gospel of Luke. And we're making our way through. And as we make our way through, um, the reason why we want to spend time in Luke this year 
is a couple reasons. Here's the first one if you're following along in the notes. In Luke, we want to learn the words, works, and way of Jesus. Three W's. We want to learn the words, works, and way of Jesus. Some of you remember the first week we started this series. We looked at this triangle up here. And it may help you just to put that on your notes or just remember that the words, works, and way of Jesus. Oftentimes, as Christians, we pay a lot of attention to the words and even the works of Jesus, but not as much attention to the way of Jesus. It was the way of Jesus that got so many people when they interacted with him. So we're going to look at those over these next few weeks. And so here's the series sentence, however. This is what we've been saying. The reason why we want to spend time in Luke is so we can be with Jesus. Because if the goal of life, according to God, is to become like his son, like Jesus, then we got to be with Jesus in order for that to happen. So we've been reading this each week, trying to get it in our bloodstream, okay? So let's read this out loud together one more time. We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And that's really what we're about. Now today, even though we're looking at the words, works, and way each week, and depending on what the text emphasizes, I want you to notice that today... For our purposes, we're going to look at Jesus' words primarily. And if you're following along in the notes, Jesus' words in this passage that we're going to study reveal why and to whom he's been sent. Jesus' words in this passage reveal why and to whom he's been sent, for whom he's been sent. Uh, And the idea here is that some people have actually said that when he came back to his hometown, this is kind of like his inaugural address. This is him saying, okay, if you want to know what I'm going to be about, if you're going to follow my ministry, then you need to know this is what I'm going to be about, why I'm going to do it, and who I'm going to be interested in. And so we're looking at that. And again, keep in mind that these are the words that got Jesus rejected in his hometown. So we want to unpack them and understand what they're about. And um, again, let me do this. Let me tell you the very first line of that, if you're looking uh, in, along in the outline, about Jesus' words about his purpose. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at how Jesus reads the Bible in his hometown synagogue. How Jesus reads the Bible in his hometown synagogue. If you didn't know, Jesus grew up with a Jewish background. Therefore, he didn't go to church. He went to synagogue. He didn't go on Sundays. He went on Saturdays. And the idea here is that a synagogue, we're going to talk about what a synagogue is, what a typical service was like, but this is where he had grown up. So even if the whole town didn't know about him, the people in this synagogue did, because this is where he grew up going. His family went there, people knew each other on a first name basis. And what he reads from the Bible is fascinating. So let me just uh, say this, what we're going to do, I don't know if you know this, but in Jewish culture, whenever the scripture was read, people stood as a way of showing reverence and honor. And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to read, follow through as I read this text, and I'm going to invite you to read where those couple gray boxes are so we can all read aloud together. But I'm going to ask you to stand up, and then we're going to unpack that text. Those of you that are able to stand, why don't we do that? And let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And I thought we just kind of practiced kind of what was going on that day in the synagogue as we look at the word of God together. So let me start with verse 14, and when I get to verse 18 and 19, and also verse 21, I'm going to ask you to read from the notes, if you would. So follow along. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Let me just stop and say this. When we hear Galilee, for most of us, we don't know it. That's a region more than a town. So the best way I could serve it up is, Jesus came to Sangamon County. 
Eventually, he'd show up in Springfield. Does that make sense? There was a town within the region. So he was returning to Galilee, which was the region he was from, and the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. This guy's on a roll. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Never missed. He stood up to read. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now let's read together what he read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'll read verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now would you read verse 21 with me out loud? He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now finish it out. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, Heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, which was about 20 miles away. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And then there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way way. You can be seated. So before we look at these words that Jesus read, his inaugural address, let's pray. Now, Lord, unless you open our eyes, these will just be words. Unless you teach us, unless you're really with us, we will not be able to learn from you or become like you. And so we ask you, as people who need you and everything you have for us. Would you please meet us here? Would you come to every seat? And would you teach us your way? For your glory and for your sake. Amen. Okay, so let's talk about what a synagogue was. Synagogues popped up after the temple was destroyed. And so during the exile that we studied about in Daniel this summer, when people were in different countries and different places, and especially because they were too far away from the temple to walk every Sabbath, they developed these synagogue systems, and they were basically small worship centers, just, again, regular buildings, and uh, you had to have at least a quorum of 10 Jewish men to be able to start one. Men and women, children, came to the synagogue, but they usually, men and women, sat on uh, separate sides of each other. 
And so what happened is, is that it was not only a worship center, but in some cases it was a school. It was like a community center for Jewish people. Now, I don't know if you know, but Nazareth and the region of Galilee was surrounded by nations that were non-Jewish. So just like we see in the Middle East today, there is a lot of tension because people right near you not only don't believe the same thing you believe, but there's a history of toxic kind of stuff that's happened. So people in Galilee were known for being a little bit rough and on edge to begin with and didn't like necessarily hearing good things about some of the neighboring nations around them. So Jesus comes into Nazareth. This is where he's grown up. And uh, during the synagogue, we know from a Jewish document called the Mishnah, we have a typical idea of how a typical, ser- an idea of how a typical service would have gone in any synagogue uh, that was attended. It almost always started with singing, kind of like we just did. And they would sing the Psalms. I don't know if you know the word Psalms means songs. And so they would sing the Psalms, usually from 145 to 150, which were the last five or six Psalms. They would sing those. And then after that, they would recite the Shema, which again, our kids in the Tanakh Travelers class know all about that, but it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and you shall love your neighbors. It would go on like this, and they would just say these things in, in that way. Then they would come next to prayers. And some of the prayers were already written. Some of the prayers they would pray uh, with the things that were written. There was a document called the 18 benedictions that would be sometimes be led in prayer. And then they would have the reading of the scripture. Now, they didn't have books. They had scrolls. And so uh, years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I actually took the youth group to a synagogue on a Saturday so that uh, we could go and just experience how other people worshiped. And our goal was, what can we learn from them and what can they learn from us? We had interesting conversations. And my father and I had known the, the rabbi at this uh, synagogue. And so it was fascinating for me to watch. There was like this box that they sometimes called the Ark of God. And they would pull one of the scrolls out th- from that. And they would take their prayer shawls, kiss their prayer shawls, and touch the word of God as a way to show reverence. Then they would read from it. And the lay readers would read from it. And first they would read from the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Law of Moses. And then they would also take a text somewhere in the prophets. And so on this day, we're told that when it came to the Bible reading time, Jesus was invited to read. And uh, because he was a rabbi, we read that next he was also invited to give the sermon for that day. He was a visiting rabbi, and that was a common practice since there were no clergy in synagogues, mainly just lay people or the synagogue ruler that would lead that. So anyway, Jesus comes back into town. You can imagine they're going, hey man, hometown boy is back. This is kind of exciting. So when he gets to that place, by the way, after the reading of scripture and the sermon, then there would become a closing blessing or benediction, often Aaron's blessing from number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Some of you have heard that before. Now, what I want you to see is that this happens during the reading right after the Torah the reading of the prophets. And Jesus rolls to the place, either he's been asked to read that or he chooses it, we don't know. But he comes to Isaiah 61 in the way our Bibles are marked, and he begins to read. And again, I've invited the life groups in your questions this week, I invite you to look at Isaiah 61 and put them side by side. I think you'll find it fascinating. But he begins to read. And as he reads it, that's what we just read together. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, as he begins to read, 
Um, when he gets done reading, it says he sits down. And most of us, when we read that as Americans, we go, well, good job. That, I'm glad you read. And when the Bible says is that every eye was fastened on him, a lot of people think, well, they, just, they were so caught up with his reading, they couldn't stop looking at him. That's not what it means at all. A rabbi sat while they taught, and people stood. I was kind of wondering, what do you think? Should we try that more often here at Cherry Hills? <laughs> Just kidding. The point is, is that when he sat down, the reason why every eye was fastened on him was twofold. One, because he was the rabbi, and he had come from their hometown, so there was probably that fascination. The second reason, though, is because of how he had read Isaiah. When he read Isaiah, he left a phrase out of the, one of the last sentences in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And here's what it says. Look at how it goes. Notice it, it shows where he ended. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read that part, but notice what he didn't read. And the day of vengeance of our God. They're thinking, how come he, how come he left that out? So they're, they're, they want to know what he's going to say next. And so when Jesus speaks, he says some powerful things. Now, here's what I want you to see if you're following along the notes. First, the passage you read says the spirits, the Holy Spirit, the spirits anointed and sent him to proclaim good news. The spirits anointed and sent him to proclaim good news. We've talked about the Holy Spirit before. The Holy Spirit, friends, is not an it. He's a divine person. He's co-equal with God the Father, God the Son. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is the one that had already anointed and empowered Jesus. We saw that at his baptism and all four the temptations he would face. Now he's saying the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to proclaim good news and freedom and other things. Proclaim, that word proclaim comes up a lot as if I've got something very important from a king for you. The next thing I want you to see is that it's to whom he's sent to that's important. Why has he been sent? Because the Spirit sent him to proclaim good news. To whom? To the poor and the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed, if you're following along. To the poor and the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed. If you read Isaiah's, it also talks about the brokenhearted. And so he comes for this purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but if you got an assignment and you knew you were going to be spending the rest of your life working with a group of people, would you pick important people or less important people in the eyes of the world? I think most of us would say, you know, just give me, give me a really, like, give me an easy one. Give me, give me a one that's thrilling and, and that makes me feel great about myself all the time and I don't have to necessarily feel anything painful or deep and all that kind of stuff. No, Jesus, as we've been learning, is the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord was sometimes interpreted as a king and sometimes interpreted as a suffering servant, but he was both. So now he comes as a servant to the lowest of the low in the world's eyes, to the people that are the most needy. And so I imagine when he's reading this passage, what he does next probably didn't completely blow people away, but I think it made him think. And notice this, if you're following along, as soon as Jesus sits down, Everybody wants to know what his sermon's going to be about? It's not real long, at least what's recorded. Some of you are going, man, that'd be great at Cherry Hills. Jesus says, today I'm here to fulfill Isaiah's 700-year-old words, if you're following along. Jesus says, today I'm here 
to fulfill Isaiah's 700-year-old words. These prop, this prophecy was written that far you know, before. And so Jesus says, it's a good thing you came to the synagogue today. Because this passage you thought was so ancient and so disconnected from your life today, it's on. It's on. And I'm here. And I'm the one who's going to make it happen because the Spirit has anointed and sent me to see to it. And notice their response. Notice what they do. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. That's like a pastor's dream. We talked about it. Steve talked about the struggle sometimes. You get up here and you say, what's the goal? Is that the goal? No. Does it happen sometimes? It happened to Jesus sometimes. So everything's going good. So how do we get to the pushing off the cliff part? Like what happened? I mean, seriously, what's the jump there? And, and we can't possibly be like as worked up and messed up as they were, can we? So what gets them mad? The next thing is, is what he says. And again, if you're following along, then he declares no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Then he declares that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And uh, people are going like, well, like what, what are we talking about here? You know, they, they thought, aren't prophets of God always been respected and, 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 and venerated in, in Israel's history? And Jesus goes, I mean, I'll help you look at Israel's history and how prophets have been treated. And if you think I'm a prophet, you just need to know I'm in a school of people that have never been accepted when they're with their own people. You've seen this. Sometimes some of the most famous people that we now think so highly of, they were not appreciated at the time. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., people like that, they weren't necessarily appreciated at the time. They weren't appreciated until after they were dead. And Jesus knows that, and so he knows, hey, just because I show up doesn't mean that you're all excited, even if you're praising me. You may like my message, but you don't necessarily, that doesn't mean you necessarily want to follow me. You just admire me. And so when he does that, what I want you to see here is that he cites, if you're following along, two prophets who can help only outsiders. He cites two prophets from their history who can help only outsiders. Now let me just try and give you some ideas here. One of the reasons why this is going to work them up is because of all the places in the Old Testament history he could go back to. He's going to pick the, one of the lowest spiritually bankrupt times in Israel's history. He's going to talk about how Israel was so unresponsive to God, even though they were his people, that even though he sent prophets, they killed the prophets, or they tried to get rid of the prophets, or they closed their ears to the prophets. They threw his words behind their backs. And so he picks that time. He says, let me tell you about two prophets. Their names both start with E. And some of you know these guys because you've read about them before, but if you haven't, I want us to practice their names because their names are close. Elijah and Elisha. Can you try that with me? Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was the younger associate of Elijah. He succeeded him. So Elijah came first. And Elijah, he takes a text that we can find in our Bibles from 1 Kings 17. I list it out to the right if you want to read it in more detail. And basically, during this three-year famine that's going on in Israel, 
when people are starving and there's widows that don't have any financial income advantage like some of the married people do, instead of being able to help those widows in Israel, Jesus says, instead, Elijah was sent to a widow outside of Israel to Zarephath in Sidon. And again, if you can imagine when they would have gotten here, inside some of the people, their physical demeanor would have changed. It would have gone, oh, Sidon. Oh, what a waste. And uh, what happened is, if you read the story, Elijah comes to this widow and she's gathering firewood sticks. And he says, would you give me some bread? And she says, I'm, I'd like to do that, but I'm actually gathering firewood to go home and cook the last meal for my son and I because I only have a little flour and a little oil left. And he said, would you go home and make me some bread first and then some for yourself? Decision time. But she does. She responds to that and does it. And what happens is a miracle. She never runs out of flour and she never runs out of oil, the rest of the famine. God provides. Amazing story. Elijah was able to help her greatly. Then he says, oh, right after Elijah, remember the next guy's name was what? Let's say it together, Elisha. And Elisha, 2 Kings 5, you can read about this. While he was the king in Israel, I mean, while he was the prophet in Israel, there was like very little response to God. In fact, the king of Israel was corrupt. And the people followed that example. And so what happened is, is that one of the Israelites that had been taken captive to Syria hears that her master, who's a general in the Syrian army, gets leprosy. And she says, oh, I wish you could go visit the prophet in Israel because he could help you. And so he gets permission from his king to do that. He gets a whole bunch of loads of money on camels and they come into town to help him. And Elisha won't even go out to meet him. But he says... All you need to do is go to this river and rinse, I mean, dip yourself seven times in this river and you'll be cleansed from your leprosy. Naaman immediately gets hot. He goes, there's way better rivers back where I'm from than these dingy rivers here. I'm not doing it, that's stupid. And he begins to go off in a huff and his friends appeal to him. They say, look, if he had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. But he's asking you to do a simple thing and it hurts your pride. Come on, we've come here. Are you going to do what he says or not? Decision time. The difference is Naaman didn't start like the widow did, ready to obey, but he humbled himself and he did go rinse in the river seven times. And the Bible says when he came out of the water, his skin was restored to that like baby skin. And he began to worship the God of Israel. Now, friends, when he names these two outsiders, he uses this incredible language. He says about the widow, not sent to the widows in Israel, but to an outsider. And when he gets to Naaman, because Naaman comes to him, he says he was not able to help anybody in Israel, only, none of the other lepers, only Naaman, the Syrian. And they, they knew enough of those stories. And when they heard that, they were ticked off. They were saying, how dare you? say that we're like those people how dare you talk about people that we hate and act like they're more spiritual than we are how dare you say that you've come for the poor and the blind and the oppressed and the prisoners none of those things are us how dare you talk to us like that and 
they rush him out of town. They don't even get to the Aaron's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. They go, that's enough of your sermon. We're done. I've never had this happen before. And if it's okay, I'm hoping it never does. But have you ever thought about what makes people hot? Help them see. Help them see where they really are with God. I'll just give you a story from my life. When I was walking away from the Lord, one of our dearest family friends, he would say to me whenever he would come into town, he'd go, how are things going with the Lord, Jeff? He'd ask so humbly, this wasn't, how are things going with the Lord? It was, how are things going with the Lord, Jeff? And I, and I would often, as soon as he would leave, I would say to my parents, I hate when he asked me that. See, I wasn't walking with the Lord. I was, he was just by that question exposing my condition, and I didn't want to see it. Friends, our nation's in trouble. And we could talk about our nation for the next 10 minutes. But you notice that these were the religious people that couldn't hear it. And in our church, in my family, in my life, are we willing to let Jesus show us who we really are? Because if we will, it can change everything. And that's what I want to do. If you ever study Luke's gospel in further detail, you'll notice Luke loves to look at the different responses different people made to Jesus. Some of the most unlikely people and some of the people that were expected to have great responses didn't always, and those that weren't expected to have great responses did. And that's in this story here. But let's look at this together with the time that remains. Responding to Jesus' words. Now next week, I'm going to spend a lot more time talking about Jesus' mission to these four groups of people. We're going to see how he actually lives that out and how that also, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to join him in that kind of mission and care for people that are in these kind of conditions and these kind of situations. But this week, I just want to focus in on what our response is and how we may wrestle with the same kind of anger, resentment, or pride that when Jesus points things out to us. So here's the first thing, if you're following along. His listeners don't see themselves as poor or blind. His listeners don't see themselves as poor or blind. Like when he's saying, the Spirit's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner, sight restored to the blind, and freedom also for those who are oppressed to release them from that. Wow, they don't, they don't go, you know, I see myself in those. They go, sure hope you help those guys those poor people. And really, what's going on here is that Jesus is right in front of them, and all they can do is ask this question, isn't this Joseph's son? No, no, a thousand times no. Jesus is the son of God. God with us. We saw it in the temptations. The devil says, if you are the son of God. We saw it in the baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. We saw it in the genealogy where it says the son of Adam, the son of God. If you go further back, you see that in the birth narratives, he tells Mary 
the child, the son that's going to be conceived and born in you will be called the son of the Most High. He will be called the son of God. Isn't this Joseph's son? No. No. A thousand times no. What will you and I do with Jesus? How will we respond when he says he's come for people that are poor and blind and imprisoned and oppressed and brokenhearted? Will we see ourselves? One of the passages that's always convicted me is in Revelation 3, where Jesus writes a letter to a church in Laodicea. And first he tells them that they're lukewarm and he wishes they were hot or cold. He's about to spit them out of their mouth. But instead of just saying that, he reasons with them. And here's what he says in verse 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. Because they were in a banking city and they all thought their material wealth was something. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You say, I'm fine. Go help somebody else. But you don't realize your actual condition is you're as poor as poor can be. You're as blind and you don't even see it. But I counsel you, there's hope for you. And so, Notice these next two lines. Admitting we're the poor and blind opens doors. Admitting that we're the poor and the blind opens doors. Denying that we're poor and blind is the next line, pushes Jesus out. Admitting we're the poor and blind opens doors. Denying we're poor and blind pushes Jesus out. One of the most chilling verses that also parallels this same account is found in Mark's gospel, chapter six. It parallels what we just read. And so look at these verses, Mark six, four through six. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. You want to amaze Jesus? You can do it either with your belief or your unbelief. Eventually, a Roman centurion said, you don't even need to come to my house. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And the Bible says, Jesus says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And he was amazed at his trust. Jesus is looking, will you trust me? Will you trust me enough to act on it and obey me? Because if you will, if you'll realize that you need me as much as any other person you've ever met, it will open doors in your life. I'll be able to do more in your life if you could admit that. But if you're unwilling to admit that, you will push me away and you will push opportunities away. I will not be able to do in your town, in your life, in your church, in your family, what I want to do because you will not own up to your actual condition. And so most of us, we hear this like, hey man, I'm trying to get as far away from poor and blind and oppressed and imprisoned and all that kind of stuff. What's he mean by poor? Well, here's just an insight. The two people that he names, the widow and Naaman, are one's poor materially and one's rich materially. So this doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus only came for the materially poor. But it also doesn't mean that Jesus, that the poor he proclaims good news to, materially poor, are automatically in. What he's looking for is those who are spiritually poor. 
that understand, blessed are the poor in spirit, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the reign of God in their lives. It will open doors. And, you know, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave them the power, the right to become children of God. Children not born of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Wow, what doors open. And so some of us, we're sitting here today, we're going, man, I sure hope there's someone here that if they haven't believed in Jesus, will believe in Jesus. Me too. But if you're here thinking that, then you don't understand this message adequately enough. This message is for unbeliever and believer alike. Remember who these words were to? Church people, religious people. And so the message I want to give can probably best be described in this story shared by Ken Hughes. A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. Can you picture that? On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and become a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few more moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, a marvelous miracle of grace indeed. The judge then inquired, but to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor answered. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister's surprise replies, you were thinking of yourself. I don't understand. You see, the judge went on. It is not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be a savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, attained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though, in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle. And when you and I understand that without Jesus, all of us, unbeliever or believer alike, are beggarly poor and continually blind. And we don't see all that he wants us to see. And we don't have the resources adequate to live the life he's called us to live. But with Jesus, oh, friends, it's good news to people that believe the bad news. It's good news when you know that you have nothing to bring. And so here's the closing question. Am I learning, like that judge, to see myself as poor and blind without Jesus? Am I learning to see myself more and more as poor and blind without Jesus? 
i just give you an example of how this has affected my life this week. This last week, several times when I've gotten down on my knees when I start the day or in my car, I've just tried to be conscious of this. Lord, let me never forget that there will never be a moment I won't need you. There'll never be a moment. Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. If you do life with me, every moment of life with me, you'll bear fruit. But if you try and do life without me, apart from me, you can do how much, friends? Nothing. Does that mean I can't like fix breakfast? Does that mean I can't drive? No. You'll be able to do nothing of significant, lasting, eternal value. What really matters, Jesus says, without me, apart from me, but with me. Here's the good news. I've come to proclaim this good news, that all throughout the day, you can do life with me if you'll remember that you don't have enough on your own and that you can't possibly see all that needs to be seen. And you'll admit that to me. I will come in like a flood and help you. So as we close, I want to just give you space. What's he saying to you this morning? Is there a relationship where maybe you've begun to think of yourself as rich enough? Someone once said, the only people the Lord sends away empty-handed are those who are full of himself. And when Jesus went on his way, the reason he went on his way is because he's looking for people that want him looking for people that'll respond to him. Is that you? I hope it is. But here's an old hymn. And we're going to lead the words up after I give you time. But here's two verses from Rock of Ages, an old hymn. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save. And you alone. And then here's the one I love. Nothing in my hand I bring. I come as a poor person before you, O God. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I just remind you of the words of 2 Corinthians 8, who says, you know the grace of our Lord, who though he was rich in the glories of heaven, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And that's why Christians down to the ages that have come to this realization about the bad news and then receive the good news, can't stop singing his praises. Because we can't get over it. So there's this song we want to 
sing today before we leave called, I Rely on You. That's what poor people do. That's what blind people do. They rely on the Lord in everything. So listen as Jenny sings.